1: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden Podcast. My name is Gabrielle Hacohen. I'm here with my BFF and co-host, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing today, Sadie?
0: I am doing fantastic. I'm in the middle of a really busy weekend, but this topic is so interesting. So I'm really, really happy to get into it.
1: No, I know. we. Uh, Sadie has had this topic on the docket for so long
0: i see what you did there (laughs) because this is a legal topic
1: (laughs) get it i had to i had to make a little law and order joke we're talking about the scopes trial the scopes monkey trial which i mean i maybe i learned about it a little bit when i was in school but sadie clearly with with its uh proximity to fundamentalism clearly learned about it in much greater detail than i ever did
0: yeah i did uh, learn about this in school. It was a major topic of conversation, but I found a lot of things that were surprising to me doing research for this episode as well.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about the scopes trial. Uh, and um, do you want to maybe give a little background about what this trial was? Because it's it's very convoluted and very like also very monumental.
0: Yes so on the surface this is a trial about a law in tennessee that didn't allow evolution to be taught in schools and one teacher who may or may not have taught evolution in a tennessee public school but it it, it is so much more than that this trial was framed as the trial of the century with two great legal minds battling each other on the topic of creation versus evolution
1: And so obviously this is the kind of thing that, uh, well, if you are inter, if you are in fundamentalism, this is like a, I mean, it's almost like a, a modern legend in many ways. For, for those reasons. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's a number of things that you can do to support us. Number one, you can just hit that like, that subscribe button, and you can share this uh, podcast with your family and your friends and and anyone who you think would like it. That's the number one way we grow our audience. Number two, if you just can't wait until Monday to get the new episode, then you can subscribe to our Patreon and get an extended version. That's right, a longer version of every episode uh, that's going to come out on Sunday uh, for our patrons. It's also ad-free. Um, It also doesn't have me bleeping out all the swears. So uh, if that's something that you like, then you can get that as well. You can join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. And finally, something that we do every year. Uh, This is the third year that we are doing this. Uh, Listeners who are of the LGBTQ persuasion uh, for Pride Month, you can write us a, a story of a, like a personal story of something that happened to you and we will read it on the show. We really do like platforming our, uh, our, our listeners and really uh, uh, talking about, you know, people's personal experiences in pride month. Um, so you can send those stories to leaving Edenpod at gmail dot com.
0: And of course, if you are sending in a story for pride month, make sure you include your correct pronouns and the name that you would like us to call you. If you need to use a pseudonym for any reason, or if your name doesn't match your email or whatever reason there is so that we can make sure we refer to you correctly when we read your story on air.
1: I gave it all to your patrons are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, Kathleen and Melissa. Fantastic. Every day, every week, every month, every year. Incredible. Wonderful people. Faith Promise Missions to your patrons. Your names are Alex P. Alex Todd, Alicia Guild, Allie Allen, Anisha Patel, Ashley Doxtater, Brooke Tully, chrissa Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, the musical, Eleanor Donahue, Emery Fairlosser, Enchanted Fairy 1389, Esther M., Hannah Ross, Hope Norham, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callan, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jana, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Lindsey Goss, Lorena Watson, Madeline Cusick, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Ricci, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie. Tara McNamara, Tiffany Enderby and Wes the cowboy. Thank you so much to all of our faith promise missions and our, I gave it all tier patrons.
0: Yeah. And thanks. And thanks to everybody who supports us over on Patreon. Are you ready to get into the trigger warning for this episode?
1: Yes. Go for it.
0: This trigger warning is considerably briefer than most episodes. Isn't that nice? a nice very lightly traumatic episode
1: yes a um like a documentary but like a history documentary style (laughs) without anybody getting uh violently abused or just something interesting you know
0: yep so in general we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show including but not limited to suicide and mental health racism misogyny ptsd ptsd symptoms child abuse mental physical and sexual abuse and spiritual abuse including guilt shame and fear in most episodes we will mention at least a few of those topics and we'll try to avoid any additional detail on those topics unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling this episode has fairly little of that it deals with the topic of evolution we will be mentioning some common ev- some common arguments for and against evolution and some key players in that general vein. But this episode is almost purely historical. There's almost nothing about religious trauma. Uh, the only thing I can think of that might be upsetting to some people is that we are talking about religiously motivated laws. But this one's pretty much just history.
1: Okay, well, let's go for it. Do you want to uh, maybe... Give us the back. So this is in, in Tennessee.
0: Dayton, Tennessee in the summer of 1925, the trial of the century happened. One of the most famous trials ever in American history. One of the most influential trials in American history.
1: Like it's up there with the OJ trial what other trials there are that were just like, I mean, the OJ trial is probably the only other one that I can think of that, that was at this level of hype
0: to get the full story. We're backing up about three years before the trial in 1922, a campaign promise was made. That sounds strangely relevant. 101 years later, John Butler was a farmer and also currently the head of the World Christian Fundamentals Association, which will become highly relevant later. But Mr. Butler was running for the Tennessee State House of Representatives. As part of his campaign, he promised to protect Tennessee school children and college students from the evils of being taught about evolution. This was a very popular campaign promise. At this time, early 1920s, Creation was still taught as scientific fact in science classes in many schools in America. Although that wasn't universal, there were certainly schools, especially in more wealthy and or less religious parts of the country that taught evolution as scientific fact or that taught creation and evolution side by side. As the theory of evolution became more popular, some people turned to older theories, such as the gap theory, which is actually older than Darwin's work, which is interesting, to reconcile creationism and evolution. A lot of people wanted to find a way to hold both beliefs at once. Other Christians turned to the newer field of creation science, which is still practiced by people such as Ken Ham and Kent Hovind today, to try to use scientific or pseudoscientific evidence to disprove evolution.
1: When I watched the Kent Hovind video. Like you remember, I watched like 10 hours of Kent Hovind videos to (laughs) research for our episode. There were several times in his videos when he would reference creation scientists from the early part of the 20th century. So he would reference creation scientists from the 20s or the 30s and say, this person had this theory, this person had this discovery, Mm -hmm. but they won't teach you this in schools. They like, I brought this up at the college where I did my talk. And it made the teacher so mad and you could just tell that she'd been got and she just like, you know, it was that kind of thing.
0: Well, the Paluxy River tracks that we talked about a few years back when we did a bunch of episodes about evolution, the the forged fossils that supposedly show a dinosaur walking next to a human in the same riverbed on the same day, um, those were found in the early 1930s quote-unquote, found, made in the early 1930s. So this was definitely an era where what's now known as creation science was becoming a real thing. So evolution's becoming more popular. People are either believing that or trying to find a way to marry creation and evolution or fighting back against evolution. John Butler, when he was elected to the Tennessee State House of Representatives, made good on his promise to introduce a bill to protect all students in Tennessee from learning about evolution. And his bill, called the Butler Act, was widely popular actually among both state house members and senate members, and more importantly among their constituents governor austin p signed this bill into law on march 21st 1925 which was a little bit of a surprise to the citizens of tennessee because governor p was known for being very socially progressive even though he was open openly christian people didn't think he would support this bill governor p may have believed that this was a good political compromise because written into the bill that outlawed teaching evolution were a lot of causes that would allow him to expand schooling in Tennessee in general.
1: Oh, okay. So I get it. So he's like, well, I want to get everyone into school, but they won't let me get everyone into school. Right. This is the era of compulsory education
0: becoming compulsory. (laughs) So Butler later reportedly said, no, I didn't know anything about evolution when I introduced it. I had read in the papers that boys and girls were coming home from school and telling their fathers and mothers that the Bible was all nonsense. So he... If his statement is to be taken at face value, <laughs> he was acting on misinformation, probably.
1: This uh, history doesn't change; it just or or it, <laughs> it, it it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes, is the uh...
0: so before we get into the facts, that's the Butler Act, and then before we get into the Scopes trial, the other thing it's really important that we talk about is social Darwinism, because this concept is going to heavily influence many of the major players in the Scopes case.
1: Okay, so I guess I'll take uh, social Darwinism. Um, Sounds great. Yeah, so social Darwinism, um, I guess about two years ago we did a show when we spoke about Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, how he had voyages to the Galapagos Islands on his ship the Beagle, and his discovery of new species of plants and animals that were native to that island and were not seen anywhere else led him towards coming up with his theory of evolution. He posited basically that because traits are passed down from one generation to the next that the traits that help one animal reproduce more prolifically will become the primary traits of an animal species which you know logically makes sense given enough time if an animal has longer arms or like a shorter snout these traits will maybe allow them to eat more easily, find food more easily, and then make them more likely to find a mate, more likely to reproduce, and more likely to pass these traits on to the next generation. A species that inhabits an island with an environment that's different enough from the place where another species of its kind may live will adapt differently, and then given enough generations, they'll become their own species entirely. And so that's essentially a Charles Darwin's theory of evolution that... If you go back far enough that a lot of the species that we see today, they're similar and they're related to each other. However, things get really backwards when you apply this theory or, or I guess a perverted version of this theory to society. So social Darwinism is the idea that people or groups of people who have societal status above others are there because they are better adapted. So By the theory of social Darwinism, if you are a very rich person who made money by exploiting the labor of others, then you deserve to be rich and successful. Other people just don't have the strength or the intelligence to exploit each other in the way that you have done. If you are a man and you look at how men are treated in society versus how women are treated in society, according to social Darwinism, this makes sense because men are stronger, smarter, more creative, duh, obviously, because if women were, then they would be more powerful. And if you're a white person and you look at how white people are treated in society versus how black people are treated in society, then you could, by this theory, you could say, well, this is clearly because white people are smarter and more creative, and black people are primarily good for physical labor. And because that's what they're sued for, they get what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, nope. I mean, Sadie, you remember in the Manosphere episode when I described like the mentality of the incel? Yes, I believe that the incel mentality is essentially young men buying into social Darwinism, but believing that they're on the bottom of the totem pole and that the only way that they can move up is through violence or through a radical shift in society's priorities to make them actually the top of the totem pole and them the thing that's that's better adapted to society. Yeah, I guess. uh, Anyway, social Darwinism as a theory uh, was first posited in 1877 but it really picked up steam at the end of the first world war. And it was actually quite popular within academic circles. This was at an age when it was during a time when racism was generally accepted within academic institutions and racial segregation was very common within academia. Social Darwinism basically goes hand in hand with eugenics. And the the eugenics movement was the the movement to promote genetic purity within humanity so eugenics promotes basically forced sterilization of people whose genes are deemed undesirable this to, to basically remove from the gene pool anything that might pollute the genome of future generations of humanity this con this concept was one of the pillars of nazism unsurprisingly and the idea that one race is scientifically superior to another and that, that polluting the D, the genome of a, the dominant race must be avoided at all costs in order for humanity to achieve true grace, greatness. That's like a, a major pillar of Nazism. So therefore, according to this theory, it is a good moral thing to exterminate the inferior races. And uh, one of the keys of the initial success of Nazism was that basically the academic class Pretty much accepted that One race was superior to another And so these ideas Were maybe a bit more palatable To upper class type people who believed That their superior genetics Or adaptability Were the things that allowed them to Gain their status in society And unsurprisingly social Darwinism really fell out of fashion after 1945.
0: So this is almost Like a half point for the Fundies? Yes yeah, because William Bell Riley, who was the founder of the World Christian Fundamentals Association, which is the organization that Butler was the head of at one point, William Bell Riley was also known as the grand old man of fundamentalism. He wrote a book called Hitlerism, the philosophy of evolution in action.
1: Well, Nazism is heavily based on social Darwinism, but of course, social Darwinism, um,
0: is not the same thing as the theory of evolution.
1: No, it's basically just people who are in power looking for a scientific justification for why they can treat other people like And so William Bell Riley says it doesn't really make sense because, I mean, yes, it makes sense to draw a link between social Darwinism and Nazism because they're closely related ideologies. But if you asked Darwin, Charles Darwin himself, what defines the success of a species, he would say that the success of a species is defined by its survival to go on for future generations. Not that it is dominant over other species. Like you don't see lions and leopards and cheetahs duking it out and with each other in like some big cat battle Royale to determine the superior species of big cat and then like if lions win, then they kill all the cheetahs and the leopards. And then say, we're the best big cat. There can only be like, no. All Darwin's theory does is is explain the diversity of species, while social Darwinism's primary purpose is to retroactively justify the dominance of one person over another and to institute a monoculture and an ethos of might makes right. So it's like literally opposite.
0: Well, that's why that's why I'm saying a half point. Yeah. Because many fundamentalists of the time, not to say that they weren't personally racist because i haven't researched it and their odds are not good being people from the 1920s but they were as a whole anti-eugenics and that's good that's that's a half point they knew that social darwinism and eugenics were related so they were correct on that point as well the the missing (laughs) the missing link to their argument was the idea that the theory of evolution and social Darwinism are inseparable and that anybody who believes in evolution also believes in social Darwinism and eugenics.
1: Yeah. And I think that also might be why they don't want people to actually learn what the Darwin's theory of evolution actually is because then they would realize that that's actually. Because they've got
0: this really convenient way to demonize it.
1: Oh, you like evolution that makes you a Nazi. Like basically that's, they can, they can do that.
0: Right. And that that's also related to one of the most common arguments against evolution, which is special creation. The idea that humans are not animals like all the other animals, that humans are a different kind of thing and don't belong on species and genus charts with other things that are not humans.
1: Interesting. Hmm.
0: Which it, that is, I mentioned because it's going to come back around. So all of this has to do not only with the grand battle between evolution and creationism, not even with like the grand battle between Christianity and atheism. This has to do with the concept of free speech itself, and these big concepts got pulled into a very small trial, which made the very small trial a very big trial. So back into historical context, we're going to talk about the Butler Act. Governor P. and the representatives, senators, and constituents of Tennessee thought they had a compromise that worked for everyone. No one really thought this law would be enforced, but it was on the books that made the constituents happy and Governor P. got to expand education. None of these people thought the law was particularly world-shaking, but they were wrong.
1: (laughs) (sighs) What
0: none of these people bargained for was the brand new ACLU.
1: ACLU, the the American Civil Liberties Union. So during the First World War, publishers of anti-war materials, uh, such as pamphlets, newsletters, flyers, could be subject to criminal prosecution. Oh, no. Most notably... Eugene Debs, who was a a labor organizer, a presidential candidate for the Socialist Party, uh, also founder of the Industrial Workers of the World. In 1918, uh, Eugene Debs made a speech in Ohio encouraging Americans to resist the draft for, for the war and he was then convicted of sedition the united states supreme court upheld this conviction and in 1917 uh, attorneys and and activists crystal eastman they founded the national civil liberties bureau to provide legal assistance for conscientious objectors to the world war one draft in 1920 this organization was disbanded and reformed into the american civil liberties union with the devoted mission of defending freedom of speech, freedom of expression in the United States as well as other civil liberties. They operated alongside groups such as the NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League but were much more broad in their mission the aclu they're notable because in their early days like they'd straight up defend anybody regardless of where they stood politically so they would maybe litigate on behalf of union of union organizers who had been legally barred from trying to rally workers to unionize they also defended the kkk's rights to free speech and to like hold rallies and parades in Jewish neighborhoods. So they're really all over the place with this stuff. Like when people talk about, oh, I'm a free speech. absolute, This is what I expect you actually mean when you say free speech. Absolutely. It's not just like I can say whatever I want. And no one can get mad about it.
0: Yeah. And the ACLU still defends um, people that are less than savory. The ACLU had just been founded in the year 1920. So when they heard about the Butler Act being passed in Tennessee, they saw a great opportunity to get some publicity for what they hoped to do with their brand new organization. The ACLU published in newspapers that they would defend anyone who was convicted of teaching evolution under this new law in Tennessee. And from there, things moved incredibly quickly. So the law was signed on March 21st, 1925, and then by April 5th, 1925, George Rapalier had seen the ACLU advertisement in the Chattanooga Times, and he had a big idea. George Rapalier was a local businessman in Dayton, Tennessee, a town that had fallen on financial difficulties, and could really use the kind of tourist money that might come from, I don't know, a national media circus trial
1: this is so wild i know
0: know. this is this is where i started learning way more new information so rapelier gets together a meeting with some local leaders and educators and he makes his big pitch important and very interesting side note this group of local leaders included attorney sue k hicks not only is hicks going to be very important to the story i'm also fascinated that this episode turned up a real life boy named sue
1: oh man somebody tell johnny cash
0: Dig I know. Him up. yeah i had boy named sue stuck in my head for like two days after i found this so rappelling big pitch <laughs> what if the first person to be arrested and tried for violating the butler act was right here in dayton tennessee And what if the ACLU's promise to defend people arrested for violating this law drew national attention? And a lot of people came here to see the trial and it revitalized our lagging local economy. The leaders saw the value in Rapalier's pitch. And they said, you know who would be great to get arrested and go down for this is that substitute high school teacher. So they called in 24-year-old substitute high school teacher, John Scopes and had him brought to this meeting
1: this is so that he was basically he was a plant
0: yeah a willing plant and this i had no idea so scopes was a little bit reluctant it wasn't that he didn't want to like get into political activism and go down for this it was more that he wasn't sure if he had even taught evolution in class at all like he was just not sure what he had said he was just going through the textbook he's a substitute teacher Rapellier showed him that the textbook required, the only biology textbook required by the state of Tennessee is the book, was at the time, Civic Biology, written by George William Hunter, published in the year 1914.
1: Wow, their textbooks were newer than my textbooks when I was in <laughs> high school.
0: Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, We
1: had textbooks. They still had USSR in them. I graduated in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> Uh.
0: But what Raplier showed Scopes is that this textbook included a chapter that taught evolution. This is the only allowed biology textbook in the state. The state bans teaching evolution. There's evolution in this textbook.
1: So literally any teacher in the state of Tennessee could have gone down for this.
0: And that convinced Scopes of the unfairness of the law scopes said well fine if you can prove that i taught evolution in my class then i will be willing to stand trial and it it almost seems like he knew that this would follow him for the rest of his life but he trusted these businessmen and he was he was young and maybe a little bit of an activist and sue hicks who was a personal friend of john scopes was going to be the prosecutor so maybe, this is my speculation, but maybe Scopes kind of thought, well, how bad could this go for me? Rapelier arranged oh. for Scopes to be arrested pretty much immediately. It's so interesting, like, these people knew this, w- this was a plot to bring a media circus to town. And maybe, um, if we're being generous, to expose an unfair law and a bad law that put teachers in an impossible situation but there's no way they could have known how big this case was going to be or how far reaching the effects were going to be so on the surface this trial is really simple right did john scopes teach evolution and violate the butler act or did he not guilty or not guilty but this turned into a trial of course about the validity of the law and whether a state should be able to dictate whether evolution could be taught in school and as the trial play- played out It, of course, became a trial of the merits of creationism and evolution themselves. Up-and-comers in law and politics heard about this case and wanted to join the prosecution or the defense. Tom Stewart, who eventually became a senator, joined the prosecution, as well as Dayton attorney Gordon McKenzie. And John R. Neal, who was a law school professor from Knoxville, Tennessee, shoehorned himself in as head of the defense team.
1: So when you were learning about this trial as a kid, was the detail about basically the whole thing being a setup, was that something that they talk they're just like, oh, this was like all a setup to begin with and the what
0: No, this was brand new information to me when I sat down to research this episode. Did you know about this?
1: No. And I'll tell you why is because I got a C in AP history and I only passed the class because I copied my homework from my classmate. And also I missed a lot of classes because I was doing singing gigs. And I think when we covered this time in American history, it was like in December and I was doing a lot of singing gigs in and missed a lot of school for that. But like when you brought up the scopes trial, it wasn't that I had no idea what you were talking about. It was just like, Oh yeah, that, that was like, Maybe there was like a paragraph on it that I read and I was like, oh, that was a big deal. I guess it was about science in the classrooms, but whatever. Yeah. I did like low-key think that like, oh, is Scopes a a kind of monkey? Like, is (laughs) there the the Scopes or like, you know, I thought that like a Scopes monkey was like a rhesus monkey. Um,
0: (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's not uncommon. But this is wild to me because I learned tons about this in school because this was something that had an irreversible effect on modern fundamentalism in a lot of ways.
1: I mean, that makes sense. But like, for me, this falls almost into the same category. You remember when we talked about the Third Great Awakening? Uh, yes. Because like, of course you learned about all of that and internalized all of that because those people are your recent cultural and spiritual ancestors. But I would have seen it as like a footnote because I was living in Portland and Jewish and stuff to do with Christianity was just not interesting to me personally it's just like how like in English class we had like a whole unit on the Harlem Renaissance but you wouldn't they wouldn't have taught you much about the Harlem Renaissance and ACE or Rebecca because you know they tended to, to people tend to discount the significance of ideas or events that they themselves don't view as important and ACE and Rebecca, probably not that interested in the Harlem Renaissance, so.
0: Yeah, I learned about the Harlem Renaissance on PBS, but I was fascinated.
1: If anybody wants to recommend the podcast series on the, the Harlem Renaissance, please hit my DMS on Instagram or like post it in the Facebook group. Very interesting.
0: After scopes arrest is when the big name started to get involved. There were the beginnings of a prosecution and defense team, um, and George Rapelier was pulling strings behind the scenes because his plan is going well, but he needs big names. He needs more media attention. Apparently, he wrote to British novelist H.G. Wells asking him to join the defense team because Wells was a known agnostic and Wells said, no, I don't have any legal experience. This is not a good idea.
1: That's so funny.
0: <laughs> I know HG. Wells.
1: like, I, I mean, it's like for the defense, Neil Gaiman. <laughs> the
0: for the hell? defense, Stephen King. Yeah.
1: For the defense, George RR R. Martin. He's showing up and like, what, the, what are we doing here? what are we That's doing That's <laughs>
0: probably what he is doing instead of finishing that last book that he's been sitting on for like 10 years
1: no dude he has two left to finish and it hasn't been 10 years it's been 12 years oh gosh yeah so
0: rappel was not the only guy who had connections so you remember john butler who sponsored this law and the law was named for him. And he had an association with William Bell Riley, who was the Baptist minister who founded the World Christian Fundamentals Association. Those two guys, they were able to get through the connection with William Bell Riley, former secretary of state, three-time presidential nominee, one of the most famous orators in the world, William Jennings Bryan, to join the prosecution.
1: Man, what a get. What a get.
0: Incredible. Yeah. This guy was one of the most famous public speakers in the world, possibly ever. William Jennings Bryan is one of those guys in the vein of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Like he had a formal career, but was known even above and outside of that career for his talents, his intelligence, a certain gravitas that he carried. His actual career was in politics where he had a reputation for being a really great political speaker. I want to play you a short clip from his famous Cross of Gold speech. This speech was first given at the 1896 Democratic National Convention, and the speech is in favor of moving away from the gold standard. This clip is a recording, a re-recording of the same speech that Brian did in the 1920s.
1: Oh, right, because they wouldn't have had the... um... The technology they, to really record it at the time, but people like said, Like live you know,
0: record the DNC in 1896. There were recording devices, but they wouldn't have been used for that.
1: Right. They would have said, oh, man, you know, it was a really great speech. That one you gave at the DNC. We got to preserve you saying that. Right. That's really interesting. So this is, the, this is a clip of the Cross of Gold speech.
2: The man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. The attorney in a country town is as much a businessman as the corporation counsel in the great metropolis. The merchant at the crossroads store is as much a businessman as the merchant of New York. The farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day, who begins in the spring and toils all summer, and who by the application of brain and muscles and the natural resources of the country creates wealth is as much a businessman as the man who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain, the miner who goes down a thousand feet into the earth or climbs two thousand feet from the cliff and brings forth from their hiding places the precious metals to be poured into channels of trade, or as much businessmen as the few financial magnates who in a back room corner the money of the world. We come to speak for this broader class of businessmen.
0: So that's just a random, one of his better known speeches that we had a great recording of that I could illustrate for you. I pulled that particular clip out of the speech because it illustrates his point um, about the gold standard. In this speech, he is positing that moving away from the gold standard would benefit m- miners and farmers and small businesses and pioneers out west, and that the Democratic Party ought to be considering all of those types of people as business people, not just big businesses, not just big banks, and that the Democratic Party ought to be speaking up for those little guys who are American business people. I listened to this whole speech. It's short, it's inspiring, and it's populist
1: well yeah that makes sense it is the democratic party they do um
0: yeah so it so brian brian effectively invented the political stump speech he was the pioneer of having a standardized speech that a politician would give at every location that they visited of course this is back before the days of tv or now the internet so you would travel from town to town and give the same speech in every town trying to get elected he invented that and he was such a good speaker that he was the kind of guy that people would go hear him speak really no matter what he was talking about brian did run for president three times uh did not win he was nominated by the democratic party in 1896 1900 and 1908 he was defeated by william mckinley twice and then he sat out the 1904 election which uh, was probably good for him because theodore roosevelt won by a landslide and that was pretty embarrassing to the other guy then brian ran again in 1908 but he was defeated by william howard taft in his first run he did make history by becoming the youngest person still to this day ever to receive an electoral vote he was 36 at the time the democratic party was strongly divided at this point between the more conservative cleveland republicans allied with like river cleveland who supported the gold standard and more liberal populist democrats who wanted to end the gold standard and of course that didn't this didn't happen for like four decades because didn't fdr do that
1: yeah it was a uh, uh, keynesian economics it was is right
0: yeah i think so john maynard keynes right
1: John Maynard Keynes. I have to
0: learn all about this in ACE because they think it's the worst thing ever that we went off the gold standard.
1: Yeah. Yo, this this is the truly ludicrous to say.
0: I really wanted to know what the official Democratic Party platform was in 1900. This is one of the years that Brian was nominated as the presidential candidate. So this is some some high points from the official Democratic Party platform. Uh, It denounced the annexation of Puerto Rico because it imposed a government on Puerto Ricans without consent. And that was taxation without representation. It denounced imperialism in Cuba and the Philippines and called the Republican party carpetbaggers for looting Cuba's natural resources when they could do a perfectly fine job governing themselves,
1: man. He, they really, they really called them carpetbaggers. That's like,
0: yeah. Uh, hate to have such, such, um, foul language on our podcast. So it said the the official platform said that the Republicans were lying when they claimed to support the Monroe Doctrine and then go out colonizing and said that the Democrats are the ones who are actually supporting the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, Here's a quote. This Republic has no place for a vast military establishment, a sure forerunner of compulsory military service and conscription. When the nation is in danger, the volunteer soldier is his is his country's best defender.
1: Wow. Foresight. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Kind of creepy prediction there. Uh, it was also strongly anti pro labor and anti monopoly. Uh, one final quote from this platform, they are the most efficient means yet devised for appropriating the fruits of industry to the benefit of the few at the expense of many. And unless their insatiate greed is checked, all wealth will be aggregated in a few hands and the Republic destroyed.
1: This is, this is wild. It's almost, I mean, if you get rid of like the extreme racism, that's also part right. of this party, then. Like- right.
0: So not saying that they're perfect, but they did apparently have a fortune teller writing their platform. <laughs> so that's a general idea of the platform that Democrats ran on in 1900, which was the second of Brian's three presidential runs. Between these presidential runs, Brian did a bit of journalism, a bit of public speaking. He earned enough through speaking fees that he no longer practiced law. After his third defeat as a presidential candidate, he was appointed secretary of state by Woodrow Wilson. He served as secretary of state under Wilson from 1913 to 1915 when he resigned because he didn't like Wilson's response to the sinking of the Lusitania.
1: So during this time, in American history I just want to give a note on the the journalism thing it was very common for politicians uh for for journalists to become politicians or to to run for elected office just because of the literacy rates in the country so like they and, and if you were a journalist and that meant that you were probably literate and so you were more qualified to run for elected office so what would happen would be sitting politicians would forge good relationships with journalists who would give them positive coverage and then in return they would help those journalists eventually get appointed to political positions or help them run for elected office later in their career so it was kind of like a you scratch my back i scratch yours kind of thing revolving door between uh the press and uh the government which still exists today yeah that's cool that's fun and definitely not corruption.
0: Ryan was a, was personally extremely invested in the progressive movement of the early 1900s and in social reform. He supported the eight-hour workday, minimum wage, and women's suffrage. However, he was also extremely religious and therefore a strong supporter of prohibition and extremely opposed to evolution, just as a whole, the whole thing. He wrote, quote, If I can help this world to banish alcohol and after that to banish war, no office, no presidency can offer the honors that will be mine. I mean, I like the idea of banishing war. That would be cool. (laughs) He believed that the teaching of evolution would degrade the morals of the country irreparably. And as you were talking about when you talked about social Darwinism, he saw the scientific idea of evolution as permanently linked with eugenics, which he strongly opposed. So he... Believed that you could not separate evolution from social Darwinism. And he believed that without biblical literalism, there could be no morality. And yet, he was praised by later liberal leaders in the mid 20th century as being the primary force that kept liberalism alive. So I would describe him in a word as principled. Some of his principles I'm a big fan of, some of them I'm definitely not. But I do respect a person who has their beliefs, sticks to their beliefs, and appears to act with integrity as best as they can in every situation, Um, even if I really don't like some of his takes. Brian was brought onto the Scopes trial prosecution team primarily because of his reputation as a public speaker. This was gearing up to be the show trial of the century, so it would make sense that one of the greatest orators of the century should be speaking at this trial. In response to Brian joining the prosecution team, the defense was able to bring on Clarence Darrow.
1: Let's go. Who's Clarence Darrow?
0: Somebody just as interesting as Brian. And there's a there's a um there's a in, there's a, a bonus murder case in here. Ooh. So, and so and it's a bad murder too. So Clarence Darrow was the son of an abolitionist and a suffragette from Ohio. All right. He, yeah good start let's go Dare i would i would describe darrow as like a righteous oh
1: so he's like he's like an edgelord he's like a dirtbag left type of guy
0: yeah Uh... Um, (laughs) Uh... like he could be he could be rough he can make people mad like when he had his beliefs like he was strong about his beliefs but he was genuinely social justice-minded, and genuinely his heart's in the right place. He just does not care if he pisses people off with his heart being in the right place. Darrow never graduated from law school, but he became a small-town lawyer in Ohio through an apprenticeship and eventually worked his way up to being a prominent labor lawyer in Chicago. Another very interesting fact that I had never come across before researching this episode is how similar Darrow and Brian were Politically, like William Jennings Bryan, Clarence Darrow was a Democrat, a populist, strongly pro-labor, pro-workers' rights. Darrow was also strongly against the death penalty, so he gets immediate points in my book for that. Unlike William Jennings Bryan, Clarence Darrow was openly agnostic, like back when that was kind of a big deal.
1: Interesting.
0: As the labor movement picked up steam and protests got more heated, Darrow took on a lot of these labor law cases turned murder trial. He defended, for example, brothers John and James McNamara, who had placed a bomb behind the Los Angeles Times building as an act of protest for workers' rights. They did not intend to hurt anyone. They intended to blow up the building. But when the bomb went off, materials in the building caught fire and 20 people were killed in the resulting fire. Darrow was called into the case because of his reputation for being able to save defendants from the death penalty. Unfortunately, during this trial, Darrow made a crucial error. He most likely bribed a juror. He was never officially convicted Mm. of having done so, but historians think he almost certainly did. And he was accused of it, like the judge knew that he had been accused of it. Didn't go well for him. The McNamara brothers were able to escape the death penalty, but they received longer sentences than they would have without the scandal. And this scandal severely harmed Darrow's reputation and career as a labor lawyer. So he turned, he pivoted to criminal law. He was already nationally known when he skyrocketed to being one of the most famous lawyers in the country in the summer of 1924 when he defended Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb. Have you ever heard about this one?
1: No. Tell me about this one. This is interesting.
0: This one, this one's bad and I'm not going to give any details because they are genuinely disturbing in this, in the Leopold and Loeb case, two wealthy, privileged university of Chicago students murdered a 14 year old boy in cold blood. Like at random, just picked a kid and murdered him. In a pretty gruesome way. Because they believed that their superior intellect would allow them to commit the perfect crime. So they literally just killed somebody to like prove how smart they were. And prove that they were smarter than investigators.
1: To prove that
0: they could get away with it and never get caught.
1: I mean, I, they were probably believers in social Darwinism.
0: That's possible. <clears throat> they were really into Nietzsche.
1: Oh, God. Ugh. So Yikes. their
0: plan fell apart because... One of these two pieces of sh- dropped his very distinctive glasses as they were hiding the body. And then when the body was found, he quickly got arrested because he was one of only three people in sh- in the Chicago area who owned such a pair of glasses.
1: Wow. That is... I'm so
0: smart. I can, I can commit the perfect crime. No one can ever catch me.
1: And you drop your glasses at the... At, at at the crime like scene. before,
0: fingerprinting was common before DNA testing was even conceived of, and you still managed to trip yourself up because you dropped your glasses and you didn't notice. Sorry,
1: I swear. Everybody who's like obsessed with how smart they are is actually the dumbest fucking person you've ever met. Yeah, fact. That's a, that's a scientific fact.
0: So these um these boys, the young men that committed this crime, were under twenty one at the time I want to expound on why Darrow took the case because this is an awful murder this is like murder is bad in general but this is an extra bad murder so why would Darrow be okay to defend it so personally I believe that everyone is accused of a crime no matter how terrible has the right to a competent defense to begin with it's part of how our criminal justice system works or how it's supposed to work the hope is that no one who is accused of something horrible but is innocent would ever go down for it, and that those who are guilty of horrible things would receive just punishments. And there's that old that old phrase, um, better to let a hundred guilty men go than hang one innocent man. Yes. Darrell was involved in this case because of his position that was against the death penalty and his ability to save defendants from it. So he was never trying to get his clients ruled not guilty. He was trying to save their, save their lives. He was brought into the case late for that specific purpose. In a 12-hour closing argument, Darrow masterfully gave the judge a legal precedent to do anything other than sentence these two horrible, guilty human beings to death. He laid out a massive case based on the precedent that no one under the age of 21 had ever been sentenced to death in the state before and and like laid out all of these reasons why the judge would be perfectly okay to sentence them to life so leopold and loeb were both sentenced to life plus 99 years which feels pretty okay for me i feel like darrow did a good job It was less than a year. So this was the trial of the century, Leopold and and Loeb. It was in all the newspapers. People were fascinated by it. And less than a year later, Darrow was asked to lead the defense of John Scopes. At first, Darrow declined because he thought his his presence would lead to a media circus, which makes so much more sense with the context that he had just come off of Leopold and Loeb. And, like, he, I was just in the trial of the century last summer. I don't really want to be in the trial of the century this summer. <laughs> like, that tracks. That makes sense. But Daryl later realized that it was going to be a media circus with or without him and decided to join the defense team. So we have our prosecution, our defense, the charges laid out. A bit of context for why this moment was so crucial. Let's go take up the offering. And when we get back, we're going to get into how this trial went down.
1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your
0: next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Has this ever happened to you?
0: I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and now I can't hear a loud horn without having an anxiety attack.
2: Hi. I'm recently deceased but never forgotten Christian music sex symbol Common. I'm calling collect from the big house, meaning heaven, not jail, to tell yous how to get answers for your religious traumas.
1: I started the excommunication station and now I realize my empathy felt weird when I was a kid and how the Council for National Policy, a shadowy Christian organization, controls just about fucking everything in America.
2: So if you've been looking for answers, or if you've ever been on the outside wondering, Hey, what's really going on in the church? These gobble ghouls have the info you need. So look up the X communication station wherever you get your podcasts and all the socials under XComPy. Peace be with you.
0: That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show.
1: We are back from our break. We hope, we hope, we hope that you guys are enjoying this episode. So we've told you who the major players are. We have Brian, we have Darrow, we have Scopes, we have the setting of Dayton, Tennessee, the hot summer of 1925. Let's go, Sadie. Let's go. Bring bring (laughs) us in. Let's, Let's do this.
0: The trial began on July 10th, 1925 at the Ree County Courthouse in Dayton, otherwise known as the newest historical place on my personal bucket list. I've got to go there. (laughs) Presiding over the trial was Judge John T. Ralston. Ralston quoted the Book of Genesis and the Butler Act at the beginning of the trial and instructed the jury to try scopes on the merit of the case, not the merit of the law. He told them this was supposed to be a question of did scopes break the law or not? not a case about the validity of the law or the truth of evolution or creation and of course all of those other things is exactly what this trial became and you said it was a hot summer in Dayton i tried to look up weather records and i wasn't able to find them but it was a hot summer in Dayton, Tennessee while writing about high profile trials in newspapers had been common practice for literal centuries this was the first trial in america to be broadcast over the radio
1: so one aspect of this trial that i think it is important to point out is that this is one of the first real mass media events in world history that was covered in real time so if we think about the time period that this happened uh in in the 1920s the telegraph had been invented nearly 80 years prior but people were like regular people owned radios now. In the 1920s, people had, had started to actually own radios. That was becoming more and more commonplace. Live broadcasts of trial coverage were available in major cities, hundreds of miles away from a Dayton, such as like Chicago. They were broadcasting this trial in Chicago over the radio. It's This was also aided by the fact that, as Sadie said, it was a hot summer in Dayton And so on some days, the trial had to be held outside. As a result of this, the audience was not limited by the capacity of the courthouse.
0: I wanted to add that the judge also had loudspeakers installed outside the courthouse to accommodate more people who were gathered there because the judge, there were so many people trying to get into the courtroom that the judge was concerned about the structural integrity of the floor of the courthouse. Daily
1: coverage of this trial. not just because a of the subject matter b because of the people who were involved daily coverage of this trial could be found in local newspapers of almost every single major city in the country due to like the massive amount of press that descended on Dayton for the trial. They had to essentially set up new telegraph lines. Like their existing telegraph lines could not handle The volume of information of journalists trying to get the story out about what happened that day in the trial it's totally bonkers to read about it's almost like as if they had to upgrade the internet for an entire town just to live stream from that location i guess that's the modern day equivalent but this was the event i guess said you and i were too young to remember the oj trial so I, I'm trying to think what are generation's equivalent to the OJ. Maybe it's the you know that you remember the Amber Heard Johnny Depp defamation trial from last year. Sure. That I mean, it just seems like it's one of those things where, like, because I was just like, oh my god, please, like, I'm not interested in this at all. It seems like it's one of those things that even if you intentionally try to avoid the news coverage of it, it's it's everywhere and you can't do anything about it. But like, I mean, they, this they were running stories about this, not just in American newspapers, but in like British newspapers, it was like truly international coverage of this trial in Dayton, Tennessee, which if you look up where, where is Dayton, Tennessee? Dayton, Tennessee is in like, it's like it's, it's not even like a major city. It's like a town like north of Chattanooga in Tennessee.
0: Yeah, it looks like the population now is about seven thousand people. and at the time, it was about eighteen hundred.
1: Not, I mean, I I don't want to say there's not a lot there because I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff to do in that area. I'm sure it's a perfectly lovely place, but it's like not. A, it's it, not
0: a town that people from Britain would have heard of. No, in the nineteen twenties, otherwise.
1: No, um, and <laughs> so like as a result of this, just complete like, and it was a planned media circus that and i mean it's just thinking about the size of the town it was 1800 people at the time and the, they were just like you know what would be great for this town is if the entire media of uh, like of all journalism of the entire country slash international all came here to dayton tennessee where 1800 people live, <laughs> and they're just like maybe that'll spice up the local economy that's a wild <laughs> Thing. But yeah, as a result of this complete media circus, there were a lot of people who were looking to cash in. So, I mean, there was people hawking merch. So you could get your your uh, Scopes Monkey Trial t-shirt, your foam hands, your, uh, I don't know what kind of merch they would actually be selling at the time, but there were people selling um, merch.
0: Bibles and little monkey dolls from what yeah, I Yeah,
1: that's what, and speaking of monkeys, this is, this is the craziest thing. I'll get to that in a minute. No, people were making political cartoons out of it, which I guess is like the 1920s version of making memes about something. But like, if you were a fundamentalist minister in the 1920s, you were going to go to Dayton because this was the like the f- front line of the fight between fundamentalism and secularism in public life. And like, even celebrities were showing up to the trial. Like, this was a place to be seen. No, the wildest detail. You uh, speaking of monkeys is that multiple not just one multiple circus trainers brought trained chimpanzees to dayton to perform outside of the courthouse
0: yeah that sounds like the 1920s this is like it's truly
1: nuts i hope those
0: chimpanzees had a nice life
1: yeah they probably that's probably overly optimistic oh i'm thinking of uh what's the name of Krusty's monkey Krusty's chimp oh i don't remember on the simpsons where he's a he's like a chain smoker oh mr teeny
0: yeah there's i i will link it for you if i can find it again i saw some neat historical footage of people holding these monkey dolls that they bought outside the courtroom no this the attachment of william jennings bryan and clarence darrow didn't make this a media circus but it certainly didn't hurt We've talked about this before, this was an era when a revival service was free entertainment, so a really exciting trial was basically the event of the century, for real, really.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of an equivalent, I guess like the OJ trial is like the... the. Honestly, this might have been bigger than the OJ trial, heresy as it is to say.
0: The thing is that a perceived war between religion and science is still a popular topic now, a decade ago we had a nationally televised debate on the literal same topic between ken ham and bill nye
1: i guess but the ken ham and bill nye debate like that wasn't the same as like this like that like ken ham and bill Nye. like you'd watch that if you were really interested in the topic i didn't watch it because like you know why like i i remember seeing oh yeah ken ham and bill nye are debating i wonder how that's going to go and then i didn't pay another any more attention to it until you brought it up when we were talking about episodes for this show and I'm like, oh yeah, they did do that, didn't they? You
0: know See, what I watched it and I was like, I was really bummed out because I didn't think Ken Ham did very well. Um, I watched it because I was going to write an article about it and like submit it to the Pensacola Christian College student newspaper thing and then it was not happy enough. <laughs> I didn't feel good writing an article about it because I didn't feel like my guy won. Which hmm. is probably a good thing because that was kind of a um light bulb moment for Colt Sadie.
1: Is this like the thing where like if we dug up your Facebook statuses from ten years ago, you'd have been
0: possibly. Let's not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. I already
0: I already get triggered by Facebook memories every day. <laughs>
1: Facebook Let's not make this worse. Memories, aka the Cult Vault. Shouts out to the Cult Vault
0: podcast. Yeah, Cult, cult, <laughs> Vault, cult, cult Vault podcast, yeah. otherwise known as my Facebook memories.
1: <laughs> no, but Cult Vault is an actual podcast, and they're pretty good. Um, yeah. Uh, No. So, but, but also, like, this was just a few years after the end of the First World War, when the very limited, like, there was like mass media slash mass broadcast system did exist like you could broadcast something nationally if you needed to it like it was this but because they like couldn't use it for they didn't have a war to use it on anymore they're like well let's do this celebrity trial thing that's going on I mean it's kind of like CNN is now like they started as a network and then there was like they're like we need to be able to deliver news 24 7 and now they're just like what bullshit can we fill the air with you know
0: <laughs> so speaking of journalists that covered this case hl Mencken was a really well known journalist who covered this i've linked his accounts in the source post source post um his writing is really fun to read it was minkin who gave the case the nickname the monkey trial
1: i do want to point out though that minkin is playing the part of both journalist and commentator here because if you like, if you read his reports, the amount of editorialization is pretty apparent. Like the level of snarky aims of the prosecution is not what you would call consistent with unbiased reporting is what I will say,
0: yeah. I get the impression that he's a good source for like what days things happened on. Or the quotes that are direct quotes, his language is clearly meant to be a little less than literal. It's meant to be colorful to at the expense of accuracy, yes. and I, I think that's okay when it's when his writing is clear that that is what he's going for. He's not making claims to the contrary,
1: but when he's describing the people of Dayton as yaps and yokels,, mm. yeah maybe it's true but that's not very polite that's not a really very good way to to
0: he was known for this aggressive and often satirical style i think his regular readers would have known what to expect and would have known how to treat his writing style how to read his style but i'm sure his work was being read by people outside his regular reader base who did not understand his typical style. And I certainly never support insulting someone's intelligence just based on where they're from. That's not cool.
1: Less than in media consumption. Make sure that you get your information from more than just one source.
0: So I'm working with three different sources on the actual like day by day, blow by blow of the trial. Um, so I've got a write-up by one of the expert witnesses in the trial. I've got Minkins write-up and I've got a historical article that's um m- more modern looking back on the trial
1: well, look at you being a a good researcher
0: i don't like to say things on this podcast unless i have two sources for them um Is i don't that always like religious get that, reasons
1: but. or because <laughs> <laughs> you need you need two, <laughs> two witnesses, <or> witnesses.
0: <laughs> um maybe <laughs> no i like i I don't always get there, but I do try to not pull any kind of claim from just one source.
1: And if there is a claim that, that you're like, I'm kind of 50-50 on this, you, Sadie will say that there's a claim that she's 50 I just tell
0: on. you where it's from and then you can decide because I think our listeners are intelligent people. So this quote is from the expert witness write-up of the trial. He said about Minkin, quote, his vitriolic articles so antagonized the people we wanted to, most to reach that we had to persuade him to leave the scene so yeah, maybe mm. definitely made some people mad.
1: I don't doubt it he he like the, it, just the amount of just like these people are a bunch of hillbillies and like you literally just call people hillbillies yeah. in his like his, my god, it's, it's just like
0: yeah, but I did enjoy his style. So jury selection for the trial took all day on Friday, July 10th, 1925. And then the trial began on Monday morning, July 13th. Question. Yes. Answer. Hopefully.
1: (laughs) What were, so they did jury selection. What questions were they asking potential jurors to see if they were well-suited?
0: So uh, I was not able to find Brian's jury selection questions. I was able to find Darrow's. So three of the questions that he asked every juror were, do you know anything about evolution? Do you have any opinion on whether the Bible is against evolution? And would you be able, would you be willing to form an opinion based on the evidence presented in court?
1: Okay. Well, that's fair. Found
0: a full transcript of the juror questioning for a couple different jurors. And I've got that linked if anybody wants to read it.
1: Any answers that really stand out to you as, as like telling or interesting?
0: Um, I can pull it up
1: because I do think it's interesting because he's not asking like, "Do you believe the Bible or do you believe in evolution?" He's asking, "Do you believe that the Bible is is irreconcilable with
0: evolution?" So there was this this juror, uh, Jane Juror Number Twenty, JP Massingill. Darrow asks him what he does for work. He is a minister. Darrow asks him if he ever preaches on evolution. Mr. Massengill says, uh, no, not on evolution alone. And then Darrow says, but do you ever talk about evolution? Massengill says, yes, I haven't as a subject just taken that up. In connection with other subjects, I have referred to it in discussing it. Darrow, "Uh, against it or for it? Massengill, I am strictly for the Bible. Darrow, I am talking about evolution. I am not talking about the Bible. Do you preach for or against evolution? Massingill asks, is that a fair question, Judge? The judge responds, yes, answer the question. Massingill, well, I preached against it, of course. And the courtroom breaks into applause. Darrow asks that anyone who applauds be excluded from the courtroom. The judge says, Yeah, don't do that. And then Darrow continues to like question him about what what do you think about evolution? You're against evolution. Do you think you'd be a fair juror when you've heard that Scopes is an evolutionist and he's been teaching contrary to the Bible? And then, the Massengill is excused as a juror. He does not become a juror. Well,
1: that I mean that makes sense though. But that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. But, but like, also they're in in Dayton, Tennessee, and that's a town of eighteen hundred people, and only I guess it can women be
0: jurors at this time. I don't they, think so. I mean, I, not I don't think so because I don't think women can vote.
1: No, it's nineteen twenty-five. They passed the the was it the 17th amendment or the
0: 19th amendment
1: 19th amendment 19th amendment 17th was federal income tax i know this oh good job um yeah the the 19th amendment and pa- then 18th that was, is prohibition yeah the 19th right. was 19, 19 is it 1918 or 1919 1919
0: 1919
1: i had yes. to look it up um so women could vote but i don't know if they were having women on juries so that's it, it, i mean that's still that like if there's 1800 people in the town how many of those people are going to be under the age of 18 and not able to be on a jury or 21 because you can't vote until you're 21 at this time
0: right which Just is how darrow voting. got leopold and Loeb off of a death penalty interesting anyway um i was a little bit impressed that they got jury selection done in a day <laughs>
1: how are they gonna find People who are satisfactory to the defense in Dayton, Tennessee, if the town's only like 1,800 people and you show up in, in, in the courtroom and somebody says, well, I preached against evolution and everybody claps, how are you going to find a, a jury that's going to give you a fair trial there?
0: That's a good question.
1: I don't Planning for your next trip?
0: no so interestingly this sunday between jury selection and the opening of the trial on monday uh july 13th brian spoke about his creationist beliefs at a church service attended by judge ralston and his entire family which Mm. seems shady
1: that's brian
0: then mm. spent the afternoon after church giving a speech in the town courtyard um Brian said that he was ready to bring, quote, this slimy thing, evolution, out of the darkness. Now the facts of religion and evolution would meet at last in a duel to the death. But would they?
1: I don't, clearly not. We're, we're going to find out. If, if only we, like, weren't still. <laughs> this
0: is what figured it out. We
1: were yeah. Dead. This is <clears throat> almost like 98 years ago.
0: Yeah,
1: 98 years ago, they're still on this, like.
0: Uh, so let's God. go to opening arguments. The defense strategy changed a lot as the trial went on for reasons that I will explain to you. The first strategy that the defense pulled was to try to get the judge to rule the Butler Act unconstitutional as it violated the teacher's freedom of religion. The defense stated that its eight expert witnesses would demonstrate that there was no necessary conflict between fr- religion and evolution. And this law was a freedom of speech problem, a freedom of religion problem, and also just not valid because the state required a textbook that taught evolution.
1: Yeah. Also, it's not just a freedom of religion. Also, the the government is legally not allowed to create a state re- to to make laws on right. the basis of of a state religion.
0: So that's uh, that's Darrow's starting point. Uh, he came out swinging on this opening argument. I have a quote from his, from his opening. The fires of bigotry and hate are being lighted. This is as bold an attempt to destroy learning as was ever made in the Middle Ages. The statute says you cannot teach anything in conflict with the Bible. And how then, Dar- Darrow argued, was his defendant to know what was and was not in conflict with the Bible when hundreds of different sects of Christians can't agree on what the Bible says or what it means. So he pushed for a dismissal on these grounds because, like, what the heck does in conflict with the Bible mean when Christians can't even get it straight? And the judge was kind of shaken by that. So the judge took Tuesday the 14th in recess to consider this argument of, like, what does in conflict with the Bible mean? However, when the trial resumed on Wednesday morning, July 15th, the judge ruled against this motion for dismissal and said the trial had to continue
1: you know i gotta say darrow's got a good argument yeah i mean what, he's got what many do we,
0: good arguments
1: like even the like when we talk about fundamental, even the fundamentalists can't agree with each other on what the bible right. actually says
0: so when your law says like and the wording of the law was cannot teach anything contrary to the bible so like what how is anybody supposed to follow that law
1: yeah i don't know it, like it's the bible also conflicts with itself all the time so are you going to not teach the Bible either because the Bible conflicts with the Bible?
0: The prosecution called as witnesses, the County superintendent of schools, the heads of the school board and seven of scopes students. Another interesting thing that I learned for the first time while researching this episode is that John scopes or possibly his lawyers very likely coached his teenage students to testify against him.
1: This is so like, this is all the kind of if this happened today this trial would be thrown out um, like everybody with anything to do with this trial would be immediately disbarred <laughs> this is so, like i'm not a lawyer okay but i know <laughs> it's illegal
0: <laughs> so you know how like, my my twitter header says i'm dumb enough to be on josh duggar's defense team <laughs> i feel like you need one that says i'm not a lawyer but this illegal. <laughs>
1: Now, I'm not some big city lawyer. Like, uh, this is like.
0: This is some Saul Goodman going
1: like, on. The thing is, though, that like all these people, they literally can't say, I'm not some big city lawyer, because they all are. Like, just well, random. Well, some of them
0: p- aren't. Like, Sue Hicks is a small town lawyer in Dayton, Tennessee. Like, I don't know how that much law needs practiced in Dayton, Tennessee.
1: I mean, I, I assume that a lot of it's probably like property disputes or like. Uh, 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 things, things of that nature, like civil stuff. Yeah, probably not as much like criminal yeah. stuff. I don't know. Um, I was just like, <sighs> but like all the, this is loony.
0: <laughs> so the prosecution was pretty simple to start with. It was, did he teach evolution? Yes, he taught evolution, and also we think evolution's bad. And so the defense started, and this is where things get really interesting. So to support their claim that religion and evolution do not necessarily conflict, which they needed for their freedom of religion defense, the defense brought together eight scientists, many of whom were also very religious men. The first of these witnesses was Maynard Metcalf, who was both a published, like a real scientist and also a faithful church member in his local congregation who taught a bible study class and a very religious person metcalf was allowed to take the stand spoiler alert the other seven were not (laughs) so darrow like established the credibility of his witness and then he started asking metcalf questions on evolution and every time he would ask a question the prosecution would quickly object saying that the only valid question for one of the defense witnesses would be whether or not scopes violated the law this is after Brian's multiple public statements that this was a duel to the death between creation and evolution.
1: So he's basically saying this is the the trial between creation and evolution, but you can't talk about- whether But you it,
0: can't bring your experts who are legitimate scientists who are legitimately religious to talk about how there is no conflict between creation and evolution. You cannot make a defense of your client.
1: He's setting up a big fight that is gonna go one round and he's gonna and it's not even gonna be a fight he's like right like it, it it just seems wild to me that he that they can just get up there and say this is the big fight to the death between creation and evolution and then not even let them talk about evolution at the trial
0: We're going to get there. You're going to like what Dudley Field Malone had to say about this. So after all of these like objections and Darrow being completely able to examine his witness at all, the judge dismissed the trial until the next day to kind of give everybody a chance to cool off. When the trial resumed, Brian presented a passionate argument against the inclusion of these eight expert witnesses' testimonies. He spoke about how the theory of evolution is demeaning to human beings, He talked about how dare you put man in that little ring with all these other animals, meaning like a a circle on a diagram of evolution teaching stuff. Brian said, quote, one does not need to be an expert to know what the Bible says. Expert testimony is not needed.
1: That's very in line with the fundamentalists that we've been studying, but also it isn't. Like you don't need to be an expert to know what the Bible says as long as you think that it says what we say it says. That's very, that's so funny. That's extreme. Like I do find this argument very telling though, because this is essentially a do your own research as a legal argument. It's like, do your own research, but make sure you come back with the answer that we say is the right answer. Like, and it's also odd that it's been a hundred years and that this is essentially an identical tack to what like, I guess, fundamentalists are saying now with regards to this.
0: That's the important part it's been a hundred years
1: no wonder they harp on this so no wonder you were just like this is the most important thing to learn about man and it was just like a footnote for me
0: yeah this is the response that i think you're really gonna like um attorney dudley field malone got up for the prosecution to respond to william Jennings Bryan's argument he boldly called Brian out on this obvious bait and switch. Here's his quote. Mr. Brian has said that this is to be a duel to the death. I know little about dueling, Your Honor, but does not mean that our only weapon, the witnesses, is to be taken away while the prosecution alone carries the sword? This is not my idea of a duel. I'm going to read Minkins. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to read Minkins account of this speech, his factual, the factual nature of this is backed up by other accounts, but Minken's wording is more fun, so I'm going to use his quote. His speech indeed was one of the best presentations of the case against the fundamentalist rubbish that I have ever heard. It was simple in structure, it was clear in reasoning, and at its high points it was overwhelmingly eloquent. It was not long, but it covered the whole ground, and it let off many a gaudy skyrocket, so it even conquered the fundamentalist. At its end, they gave it a tremendous cheer, a cheer at least four times as hearty as that given to Brian. Really? Yeah, the The um, entire courtroom just went up in applause, and that's uh, supported by other people other than Minken this is not a like and everybody clapped moment this happened
1: (laughs) when i think about it though because like if if the people in town for the trial they're there they're not just there to like see one side win or the other. they're there for the show they want everybody to testify and everybody's mother to testify
0: they They want want the
1: juice they They want want... a
0: verbal boxing match and this is the day that they got it one of the days that they certainly got what they were there for
1: and it's just getting nerfed like and they're like no we want to see the experts we want to see what these guys have to say Right. No.
0: So the court, after that interruption, the court went into recess again for the day. Darrow went back to the house where he was staying with the expert witnesses, and he asked the remaining seven witnesses to write up what they would have said had they been allowed to testify. Darrow correctly predicted that the judge would rule in favor of Brian against the inclusion of any expert witness testimony at all the next day judge ralston did rule against allowing the other expert witnesses to be heard like darrow predicted darrow said the outcome is plain we expect to protect our rights in some other court so darrow is acknowledging that without any ability to actually provide a defense at all of course scopes would be found guilty he was signaling that the defense was gonna just kind of lay down their arms and appeal to a higher court judge ralston Picked up what Darrow was putting down and he took that as an insult to himself and his courtroom and the entire state of Tennessee.
1: Of course he did.
0: (laughs) Well, he wasn't wrong.
1: He wasn't wrong, but also like talk about it, be about it. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're gonna say you can't defend yourself, then he's gonna say, Well, fine, then I'm gonna appeal it. And then he's like, You can't do like it's like surprised Pikachu. You know what I'm saying? Right. Oh, you won't just accept that this verdict (laughs) that I've just decided on
0: from the bench in a jury trial, by the way, the jury had basically not been in the courtroom for most of this trial, because most of the content of the trial is the judge deciding what is and isn't admissible along lines that seem pretty biased. So a lot of that the jury was not allowed in the courtroom for at all.
1: So when you were learning about this, when you were a kid, did did you learn about like what was and wasn't allowed and, and no. this and that and the, no okay so you I learned about
0: the things that happened outside the trial that made this trial happen. I did not learn much at all about the actual events of the trial.
1: So you weren't learning about how oh it was obviously slanted one way or the other and that's why right. the verdict came down the way that it did.
0: Of course not. So before before the verdict though, <laughs> so. Uh, darrow insulted the judge this led to a tense exchange after which darrow ended up being found in contempt of court and then was forced to apologize in order to get the trial back on the rails
1: i mean the thing is though that like today if you if there is like a ruling on evidence one way or the other it is very openly speculated about whether or not there is going to be an appeal based on whether or not this evidence is or isn't included and judges will will consider whether or not including this evidence would make their grounds for appeal like that is is one of the things that they do think about when they're deciding what goes in and what doesn't go into the into the trial they have to weigh whether like excluding this evidence actually Possibly violate somebody's rights to a fair trial versus whether it could be unduly prejudicial towards the jury Like that is a common thing that you have to do and if you do that wrong, then they can't appeal. This is well known It's
0: right and like we saw with the Duggar trial so much jury instruction and yes, and um, Really cautioning the jury. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go on social media, etc. Etc to right Try to prevent unnecessary appeals. So, I mentioned that Darrow had the eight expert witnesses write up what they would have said if they had been allowed to testify. These statements were widely distributed, and one article that I read called them a national biology lesson, which I thought was interesting.
1: I mean, they basically, I guess we're not calling it Streisand effect anymore, they, follow, they fall well affected themselves. Cause this, this whole trial was supposed to be a PR stunt anyway. So in banning the expert testimony, judge Ralston essentially ensured that every single person who was following the trial would hear exactly what the experts had to say. Yes. It's
0: just. (laughs) And this article implied that this may have been the first exposure that many Americans had to the actual teachings of evolution, which seems plausible.
1: That seems, I mean, that seems extremely likely to me. It just seems, it's It's so interesting that this was so many Americans' first exposure to this because it would mean that the thing that I'm thinking about is that it would mean that Americans' first exposure to evolution would be it being said to them as the thing, it, not as the thing that the Bible is against because these are the Experts who are saying, "Well, evolution doesn't necessarily conflict with the Bible." I'm a religious person, and I believe in mm-hmm. evolution. This is what the the evolution, you know. So I do think that's interesting, but I also don't think that that's the um, that's what the fundamentalists would want because they definitely want the black and white thing of you're either for evolution or you're for creation.
0: Right, and the, so the people who were listening to this trial were hearing Brian, you know, say all these things about special creation and how evolution is offensive to him because it implies that humans are just another type of mammal or teaches that humans are just another type of mammal and so they were they were presented with reasons not to accept evolution but they were also presented with a very factual account of what evolution is it's interesting but this this exchange this exchange between darrow and the judge is so crucial because Through this exchange, the defense effectively lost the trial because they had had their entire defense strategy ripped out from under them. Darrow and the other defense attorneys and the expert witnesses and Scopes, they all knew well before the judge even made the ruling that the expert witnesses weren't going to be allowed to testify, that that was what was going to happen and that they were going to lose the trial. But the locals and other fundamentalists listening listening in on the radio and people reading about this in newspapers, we were so disappointed that William Jennings Bryan backed down from the duel of the century. It was William Jennings Bryan himself who called this a, a fight to the death between creation and evolution. And then it wasn't Darrow or the defense who backed down. They came ready to fight. Why wouldn't Bryan fight this duel?
1: I'm just imagining the 1920s version of like Skip Bayless or like Stephen A. Smith. The, like saying what does this unwillingness to let the experts testify say or reshape the way that we think about William Jennings Bryan's legacy like that <laughs> the man
0: so oh. the defense was allowed to enter into evidence the written statements of the expert witnesses they also entered into evidence three different translations of the bible that differed from the king james version that prosecution had put into evidence to make their point of, if you can't teach anything contrary to the Bible, you have to be able to define what the Bible says, and that's not something that people can do.
1: Well, yeah, if there's different versions, then you can just say, well, if you can't teach anything contrary to the Bible, then you can't even teach the Bible, because these are all the Bible, and these are all different.
0: Right. Which was So they're kind of going back to their original defense strategy. With the defense strategy completely gutted and sold for parts, Judge Ralston asked the defense whether they had any remaining witnesses to call. The defense, of course, was completely out of witnesses and had no more strategy. This was the day, like chronologically in the trial, this is the day that they moved the trial outside. Because not only was it so hot, but also um, the judge was worried about the structural integrity of the floor, because there were as many as 600 people packed into the courtroom wow the judge had also i found this neat little historical sidebar the judge had also banned smoking in the courtroom because apparently it was just a cloud of smoke in there so this was back when you could smoke in courtrooms but it was so bad everybody had to switch to chewing tobacco this is my favorite part of the story in what is still considered one of the greatest shock moments in the history of american jurisprudence Clarence Darrow called William Jennings Bryan to the stand as a biblical witness.
1: That's so fascinating.
0: Oh yeah, this you took all my witnesses so- away. I'm going to call the lawyer for the prosecution.
1: <laughs> this is such a a like reverse Uno. Not all. Draw 4.
0: So, Bryan had Man. no time to prepare for this examination. It was shock to him. And he would have been well within his rights to say no, not take the stand. His colleagues on the prosecution, knowing that the case was already over, encouraged him not to take the bait. But for reasons that we may never fully understand, he did.
1: I mean, I'm sure that he was aware of what was being said about him in the press, especially after all of the, the exclusion of the expert witnesses where he can, like, I mean, I am sure that he saw that the defense was like playing to the press and rather than just sticking in his arena and just being like, I can, I, I won this case. We won. And just saying, I'm going to shape the narrative the way that I want to, and not even care about what anybody, like he decided that he wanted to, That that's the only thing that I can think of is that he started reading what people were saying about him, which yeah. you can never do. If you're a public figure, you just never, oh,
0: so outdoors in the summer heat darrow and brian finally did have their duel darrow asked brian a series of questions about the literality of several events in the bible such as creation noah's flood the tower of babel and jonah getting swallowed by a whale to which brian brian answered that he did believe these events literally happened as told in scripture then in a gotcha that should have been able to be seen from outer space Darrow turned his questions, tripping Brian up and finally getting him to admit that he did not believe in word for word biblical literalism. Brian grew more and more flustered while Darrow remained calm, embarrassing one of the greatest orators of the time in a way that he would quite literally never recover from.
1: So what specifically was he asking him about to to trip him up?
0: So one of the gotchas, so he gets him to say that he believes jonah was swallowed by a literal whale that he believes the literal creation account as written in the book of genesis and then Darrow says but the bible also says that christians are the salt of the earth you don't believe that christians are literally made out of salt do you
1: oh okay so he's, he's
0: making the point that a literal interpretation of the events of scripture is a different thing from word for word literalism
1: I mean that makes sense that that is a, that is a distinction, but that also doesn't necessarily like. So does the does the law that Tennessee made basically say it has to be word for word, or does it say it just can't be in conflict, and that has to be like up to interpretation forever? Who's in, in, interpreting it?
0: I think the law says that it that it can't be in conflict. What Darrow is trying to point out is that interpretations of scripture very wildly even among extremely religious people
1: okay well i mean it makes sense christians are made of salt this isn't well-known fact so it's
0: I'll... i have you licked one
1: <laughs> yes very salty
0: to give you an idea of how this line of questioning was going at one point brian said i do not think about things i don't think about to which darrow asked do you think about the things you do think about and brian answered well sometimes
1: that's so like what? What are we even doing here?
0: Do you know that girl on TikTok? You probably don't, because you don't you don't do that much TikTok. There's this there's a young woman on TikTok who does <laughs> reads wild uh, trial transcripts, and she's got sunglasses, um, and she reads like the weirdest things that have ever been said in court. This this is material for her. So this is develop- this is devolving into more of a petty argument, and. I think you could see it as Darrow being cruel to Brian, like, well, you won this case, but I'm going to have the last word on a national stage. Or you could see it as Darrow being a ruthless lawyer and this all being part of the game. I don't know where quite where my feelings lie on that.
1: Well, it makes sense about if it was the first one, because this whole trial was supposed to be a publicity stunt anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah so i don't i don't know like what his and what darrow's intentions were or how brian felt about this the common theory among fundamentalists was that the heat and stress of the trial and brian's age all kind of caught up to him at once but looking at this from my current perspective it seems like his view was a religious one not a logical or a legal one and naturally that didn't hold up in court
1: Well, how come God didn't give him the strength to uh, persevere through this adversity?
0: You want the funny answer?
1: Yeah, give me a funny answer first and then, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, so the the Fundy view was kind of just, oh, it's really unfortunate that he wasn't able to give a better performance on the stand. I could make up a Fundy answer and say maybe he was prideful in taking the stand and thinking he could go up against Darrow, who had had preparation when he had no preparation and no idea what Darrow would ask him.
1: Yeah, but faith in the Lord is the only preparation you
0: need. Apparently not at this point, not on this day. <laughs> Regardless, as Brian's performance on the stand got worse and worse and his embarrassment on a national stage was more evident, attorney Malone for the defense stepped in to put Brian out of his misery, and just basically called Darrow off. So we're moving on to closing arguments. Instead of presenting a closing argument, Darrow admitted defeat and simply asked that the judge ask the jury to return a guilty verdict, since it had been proven that Scopes had taught evolution and again implied that they would be seeking appeal at a higher court. Because Darrow did this, Brian was not able to give the closing argument that he had prepared, although it was published in print later.
1: What was so was he like, did he come in with an argument trying to like argue the facts of the case and just put on a big stand?
0: Who? who? Darrow?
1: Was that his plan? And then he just got—I
0: don't know. I don't like his performance. Like in in all of this, he didn't live up to his reputation. His speeches written for the trial were on brand for him, well written, but you, eloquent, and all of that. But in none of this, he did he live up to the expectations that were on him and then he didn't even get to give his closing argument at all because darrow cut him off so i did get a copy of what he would have said at closing argument because it was published later in print in this closing argument brian appealed to an idea that we've talked a lot about a lot on this show which is special creation he talked about being offended by the idea that humans are just another type of animal his closing argument also responded to the defense's claims that evolution and religion are not diametrically opposed. It attacked evolution on several moral grounds, um, and attacked Darrow for having participated in the Loeb and Leopold case. Towards the end, it spirals into a straight up religious speech comparing the judge and jury of this trial to Pilate deciding whether to sentence Jesus to death or not. Uh,
1: that's a stretch.
0: It, I really, uh huh. That's mm. <laughs> a real stretch. <laughs> so I have a quote from this speech. Um, it was hard to pick just one, but this is from near the end. This is from kind of his summing up of everything he would have said in these closing arguments. Go for it. It is for the jury to determine whether this attack upon the Christian religion shall be permitted in the public schools of Tennessee by teachers employed by the state and paid out of the public tre- treasury. This case is no longer local. The defendant ceases to play an important part. The case has assumed the proportions of a battle royal between unbelief that attempts to speak through so-called science and the defenders of the Christian faith speaking through the legislators of Tennessee. <laughs> wow
1: (laughs) yeah that's just i mean that that's just not great it's just like
0: you read it and uh, you're like oh that's awful like we that's that's awful to set up a state of the united states as the defender of christianity and to impose christian religion on every resident of a state regardless of their own beliefs um this is like why we have separation of church and state to begin with is it not and then As your mind is going down that road, you realize, oh, right. We're still doing this.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, I I was thinking back to when we were talking about uh, a Christian nationalism, we were talking about, oh, the, the first amendment and how you were basically, one of the things that you told me was that there were like individual states had their own individual church. So was the, um, like, like in, in the colonial era before the, um. But before the United States, some
0: states had an official church of the, of that state. And then others didn't.
1: Right. And it just seemed to me like you could, if you wanted to, you could say, oh, well, we're not establishing an official state, uh, a church, like the, the church of England is the official church of England. We're not doing that, but you still have to be Christian. That's kind of like the way that you can argue it.
0: Right, Or even you don't have to be Christian, but this is what is taught in our schools.
1: Yeah, and there's like there is mental gymnastics that you could get used to get from that point to the other point.
0: So even without hearing Brian's speech, the jury returned a guilty verdict in just eight minutes, and Scopes was ordered to to pay a one hundred dollars fine. The case went to the Tennessee Supreme Court on appeal, where the fine was overturned on a technicality, but the Butler Act was upheld. Further appeals like to the United States Supreme Court were denied because the Tennessee Tennessee Supreme Court said, we see nothing to be gained by prolonging the life of this bizarre case.
1: I mean, that is faster than they came back with a verdict for Josh Duggar.
0: Well, it was clear. It was clear that he broke he the law. It. Yes. Oh, he admitted to it and had evidence. And. I think the idea that the law is a bad law and shouldn't be upheld is a good argument.
1: Yes, but also the the Tennessee Supreme court saying, okay, all the nonsense with the monkeys, like that was just too much for us. Please. We're not, we're not doing this anymore. Just leave us alone. Mm-hmm. You can't appeal this case because we just want to be done with it. Right. You we're not going to, that's, that just seems like that's an abdication of responsibility yeah uh if you are a judge your job is literally to you know make decisions like this and you're just abdicating responsibility because there was a media circus and like monkeys and people selling like merchants <laughs> and you're just like uh oh, this again i'm tired of this like
0: yeah we should just go I away think ruling having higher courts rule on the constitutionality of a law or the enforceability of a law Or the morality of a law is something that we see all the time now right Um,
1: this is like like, this
0: is how we got jobs but it's also how we got um
1: obergefell
0: yeah that one
1: yeah that's
0: like like that's how that's how these landmark decisions that have happened since we've been adults happen And I, I wonder, I haven't done enough research into this to say for sure, but I wonder if that was less common in almost a hundred years ago, because now that's what courts do. But was it then?
1: Well, the concept of judicial review was established by like in the, by the first United States Supreme court, that concept of judicial review, deciding whether or not laws are constitutional or not because of the alien and sedition acts, I believe they struck down the alien and sedition acts. And uh, I think that was under president Adams where they passed the alien and sedition acts. Uh, I And the name is they, familiar,
0: but I don't remember the history.
1: I know I got a C in, in AP us history, but let me,
0: well, I didn't get a chance to take AP us history. Cause I was stuck reading out of paces and a Becca Yeah, box. In
1: 1798, Congress passed four laws known as the alien and sedition acts, which, uh, Tightened restrictions on foreign-born Americans and limited free speech critical of the government. And these acts were struck down by the Supreme Court, I believe. And that was in seven like 1798 is when they passed those laws. And I think, yeah, is that right? Somebody somebody will have to correct me. I can't remember. I'm I don't know. To, yeah.
0: So, okay. There's one last twist here. Six days after. The scopes trial ended William Jennings. Bryan was still in Dayton. He ate a very large meal laid down for a nap in the afternoon and died in his sleep. Of course, I remember hearing growing up that his broken heart over the cause of creationism at his cruel embarrassment at the hands of Darrow is, is what did him in.
1: So it was the evolutionists. Not only did they lose this case, but they killed this man out of revenge for losing the case
0: right sort of like poor poor brian the way i heard it was he was a crusader for creation and he probably knew that he was not doing well with his health and he decided to go fight anyway and more like a, a soldier fallen on the battlefield kind of metaphor
1: and he gave his life for the lord
0: it's just it's so interesting to me that this case didn't end or decide anything and was still so massively important and that we're still fighting the same battles. I have to wonder if Brian had actually fought the metaphorical duel that he said he came to fight. Would that have changed anything? What was going on with Brian's health during the trial? If he had been on his A-game, would his questioning by Darrow have gone any differently? If anything, this trial was a win for evolution. Not only did it garner national interest in the topic and entice many people to read the expert witnesses' writing, but it also just made creationists and fundamentalists in general look awful. The thing is, we can make a lot of well-informed guesses about how this trial influenced American education, the legal system, the concept of media tri- circuit trials in general, the public opinion of evolution, the public opinion of creationism. But with things like public opinion, there's no way of knowing for sure what influence somebody something had like we can draw logical lines oh this thing happened and then 20 years later the the opinion you know we took a survey before this thing happened and then we took another survey 20 years later and opinions changed we can guess what changed the course of public opinion we can take surveys and make graphs but we What we don't know is what happened in the hearts and minds of individual people. That is really hard to measure in a graph or a survey because people can have their minds changed on an issue without even knowing what it was that changed their mind, right? Or people can change their minds on an issue due to multiple different things and not really know which one of them was the thing that made them change their mind. The, tr- the fallout from this trial is still happening. This happened 98 years ago this summer, and it's not really over. And we're still not even far enough away to know the true impact of this event. But we are far enough removed historically to know that this was important, that it shaped the course of the next century, that it was a catalyst for things that are still happening. It's fascinating. I'm so glad that we dug into this one.
1: Yeah. Um I have I guess one more question. When did you because you were taught about this growing up, when did you start to see this topic differently? When did you start to really do outside research on this uh on this trial after getting out of the IFB?
0: On this trial?
1: Yeah, on this trial.
0: Like a week and a half ago.
1: Okay, really. Okay. So yeah. you were um I may have so- like
0: read the Wikipedia page before, but huh. the actual research, yeah, recently
1: that's that's interesting so when when was it that your view of this trial started to really shift
0: i think doing research for this episode because there were so many things like major plot points that i was not aware of
1: were there any major plot points that you were taught when you were still ifb that you're looking down you're like actually that didn't even happen
0: i think the yes yes the way that I was taught about this trial, the idea was everybody was pro creation, and these nasty evolutionists just came to town to cause trouble and made us have a trial when there shouldn't have even been one. And they, you know, they just came to try to win people over to their side. Basically, they, this was framed as evolutionist evangelism, and not that That's it wasn't so funny <laughs> because of things that have come to light in my research but the the way this was framed was that 99 of americans agreed with creationism and it was only the very small minority of atheists and agnostics that had any kind of problem with young earth creationism and in researching this episode that's clearly not true um we talked about the townspeople giving a huge applause for uh the attorney for the defense who stood up and said aren't we gonna have a duel this isn't my idea of a duel and we have good reason to think that the vast majority of residents in dayton tennessee and surrounding areas were not evolutionists and didn't particularly support evolution being taught in their school and that's fair that is what they believed but to imply that the entire country believed that way is simply historically inaccurate and to imply that atheists and agnostics were the only people in the country who didn't believe in young earth creationism is ludicrous that's simply not true as evidenced by the eight expert witnesses most of whom were religious that that came to testify for the defense as evidenced by governor p who was very religious and did not have a problem with evolution. But what what I learned researching this episode is that gap theory is an 18th century invention. 18th century, the end of the 18th century, 1790 something, is how long Christians have been finding ways to honor their religious beliefs while also respecting science.
1: I actually had this conversation with a Chabad rabbi a while ago and I asked, I'm just like, what's, what's the deal? And he's like, well, I, and his response was basically just because it says that it took seven days. That doesn't mean that it's seven human days was basically what he said to me. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Well, there's a scripture verse, a day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, which is the verse that gap theory is based on.
1: It makes Basically, sense.
0: when God says a day, it doesn't necessarily mean a 24 hour sunrise, sunset period, the way that we humans understand it.
1: Because if he creates the heavens and the earth, then do days exist if there isn't like you know what I'm saying? If he mm-hmm. if he creates the heavens and the earth, then earth doesn't exist before that to rotate 24 anyway we're getting into a we're really in the reeds here i just think that i i I find this really fascinating that this is like uh how much i guess like grievance was based off of this thing that in in your upbringing and this was something that for me was just like oh yeah that's that thing that
0: happened yeah and to me it was that time that those horrible evolutionists uh, forced their way into the schools of Tennessee and dismantled our guy, William Jennings, Bryan and caused all this trouble. And it was one of the first great victories for evolution in this country. And it's one of the worst things that's ever happened. So on and so forth.
1: I mean, I'm almost thinking of like the, you know, in, uh, in, in the Avengers movie, when Wanda is like to Thanos, she's like, you took everything from me and he's like, I don't even know who you are. that's, that's almost how I feel about it. It's wild. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We had a great time making it. If you guys want to subscribe to our Patreon, we got a couple of new Patreon exclusive episodes. I'm going to talk about, um, running into a Christian, uh, counselor, somebody who says that they got a doctorate in Christian counseling, somebody who I ran into when I was at the Kentucky Derby. Very interesting. Um, and that's gonna be Patreon exclusive. Also, an episode where Sadie talks about this doula scammer. This like person who mm-hmm. went around was scamming doulas and it blew up on TikTok and they used cult.
0: Yeah, it's not a cult story, it's a scammer story. It's a really unique scammer story for a lot of reasons but this particular scammer used very blatant cult-like tactics so i brought i put together a whole episode about that it's out now on patreon
1: yeah and um i hope that you guys enjoy uh yeah and you can find those at patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast uh go and join our facebook group facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus you can join our subreddit reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus you want to follow the podcast on social media it's facebook and instagram and tiktok at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, your social media?
0: You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One.
1: And you can follow me on, I guess Instagram's the only one I really use now, it is at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You have a great day. Bye bye.